0: Welcome to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters, Senior Pastor at Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. In His Grip is a daily broadcast presented by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today's sermon is taken from a series of messages by Dr. Betters entitled, The Grapes of Wrath, which describes the ministry of Isaiah in Israel and Judah over the course of 60 years. In today's sermon, The Grapes of Wrath, Part 3, Dr. Betters tells us that half-truths give birth to full heresy, including denying the supernatural, determining truth on my own, and denying God's sovereignty. The result is our society has now reversed the moral code, calling good evil and evil good. Let's join Dr. Betters as he introduces us to the last two sins of the Church of Israel and of today, privatism and passivism.
1: Well, what do we have today in the church? We have the modern health and prosperity gospel a concoction of men's opinions. All you have to do is believe a certain way and God will heal you. All you have to do is lay it down and claim it. Name it and claim it and God wants you rich and healthy and prosperous. The reason you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. The reason you're in debt is because you don't have enough faith. The reason you're not driving a Mercedes is because you don't have enough faith. No offense to Mercedes owners here. But the reason you're not prospering is because you have weak faith. You see, you need to dig down inside of your human soul and touch that seed of faith that's there. You ever hear that expression used? Plant a seed of faith. Well, we don't have any seeds of faith to plant. My Bible tells me that any faith I have comes from God. It's His faith. It belongs to Him, not to me. Left to myself, I would not believe. Name it and claim it. We have the modern day signs and wonders movement. All the result of man opinionating the scriptures, deciding for himself, relatively speaking, what is true and what is false. We have churches today that preach that you're only partial Christian unless you have spoken in some sort of a tongue. Unless you have uh, received the, quote, baptism in the Holy Ghost. And usually there are two lines at these churches. One to receive healing, one to receive the baptism. Sadly, not in all cases, but in many of the cases, that is usually accompanied by some sort of plea from the pastor to now demonstrate that you truly have been filled with the Holy Ghost by whipping out your checkbook. This is heresy and all designed out of the roots of men's opinions who take the scriptures and make them, believe, make them teach whatever they want them to teach. There's another movement, the modern-day ecumenical push that ignores biblical truth. Yes, there is great division in the body of Christ, but most of that division is rooted in a disregard for good biblical exegesis. I am not willing to hold hands and walk down the street with someone who denies the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm not willing to say that just because he calls himself a Christian, he's my brother. I am not willing to stand up and say that the people who hate my God ought to be loved by me in some sort of ecumenical sense. We're told, whip down the barriers. Denominations are of the devil. Maybe there's some truth in that. But I want to tell you, it all fundamentally comes down to whether or not we are going to believe the divine opinions of Scripture or whether we, are going to, whether we are going to believe the opinions concocted out of the hearts of depraved men. What the Bible means to me is far important than what the Bible means, period. That's how people think. You see, what it means to me is more important than what it means. So truth is determined by what it means to me. If I like it, I believe it. If I don't like it, I spit it out. You see, the starting point, friends, of truth is not what the Bible means to you. The starting point of truth is what the Bible means, period. That's not a popular message. You see, what happens now is truth is dissected into two half-truths. We take certain scriptures, we cut them in half. We say, well, this half of the scripture is true, and this half we throw away. So we cut the truth into two parts. You know what happens? Like a worm, each of those half truths grow a new half. And what we have is full-blown doctrinal heresy that is rooted in half truth. Half truth. This is relativism. This is the natural child of Gnosticism. This is the natural child of rationalism. If I am going to deny the supernatural, then I deny that this book was written supernaturally. And if I deny that this book is written supernaturally, then I am free to determine the context of truth. I make my determination based on what's good for me. You ever hear people talk about their faith? People who... Are not Christians? You ever hear them talk about it? It's amazing to me how many people are going to go to heaven, in their opinion. I mean, the most common, the most common form of rationalism is this: I am a, what? Good person. Are you? Well, relatively speaking, you may be a good person. Compared to that person sitting next to you right now, you might even be a saint. A good person. The most common form of demonic half-truth is the rationalistic belief that says, God is a fair God. Therefore, He is going to judge those more harshly who are more evil than me. I am a basically good person. Therefore, I am going to heaven when I die. That ought to break your heart. It ought to break your heart to hear people say that because I want to tell you, they're the hardest people to reach. I'd rather debate Madeline Murray O'Hare than to enter into a discussion with people who are convinced that because of their inherent goodness, they're going to heaven. This might be absolutely shocking to some of you, but you can be the best father, best mother, best husband, best churchman, best employer or employee, best next-door neighbor. Give your right arm to the poor and the needy. Never pass a stranger on the street that you don't cheer up. Give thousands and thousands of dollars to causes that are good causes. You can do all of those things and spend eternity in hell. Now I know there's some of you sitting here right now who say, You're nuts. You're absolutely crazy. You mean to tell me, and you're probably going to think right now, of some dead relative that you have who was a good person but did not embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And somehow or another, you're going to try to convince yourself and the rest of us that the Bible is wrong and you are right. You see, here's the problem. If you want to be relative, then you've got to be relative fairly. Now here's how relative fairness occurs. If you want to compare your goodness to something, compare it to the holiness of God. Because that's the standard by which we're going to be judged. Not how good you are compared to your next door neighbor. Not how good you are compared to the Joe Schmo down the block. Your goodness is going to be judged according to the standard of the holiness of God. Then what do you do? Go through the whole of your life. Commit no sins, not even one not even one sin from the time you're born until the time you die, except you tell one lie. The book of Romans tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That one sin, relatively speaking, places you side by side with the holiness of God, and God, who is so pure and so holy, is bound at that point cast you into everlasting fire. Is this strange to some of you? Well, you see, if you believe fools like this, then it's not strange. If you believe fools like me, then it is strange. But you see, the basis of my doctrinal system is not in the context of rationalism, Gnosticism, mysticism, or relativism. The basis of what I believe is what God has revealed to us in the book. This is my authority. And this tells me, wrap up all your righteousness, lay it before a holy God, and it becomes as what? Filthy rags. Not just rags. I got rags at home. But there are filthy rags that make the rags look clean. All of my righteousness, if that's how I want to be judged and stand before God, then that God who is so holy and so pure becomes the standard by which I am judged. Relativism. And the church has slipped into this form of relativism, health and prosperity, signs and wonders, ignoring biblical truth, disregard for good biblical exegesis. What the Bible means to me is far more important than what the Bible means, period. Relativism, the natural birth child of rationalism, Gnosticism at its worth. Truth is determined by whether or not I believe it's true, not by whether or not it's true. That's sad. So, you know, some of you are sitting there and saying, Well, I don't believe that. So what? You don't believe it. You see, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to say, Well, since I don't believe that's true, therefore, it's not true. What happens if I am right? God is bound to prove himself to us, we say. And what do we come up with? All kinds of crazy doctrines. For example... We say divine sovereignty, but you see it pales against the backdrop of human free will. We create this new thing called free will. God is really not sovereign over the plan of salvation. He's really just wound up the clock and turned it over to me. So yes, God is sovereign, but no, he really isn't sovereign because, you see, my free will is what's sovereign. You didn't choose him. He chooses you. You're not saved out of the merit of your heart. The Gospel of John tells us it is not by human will or birth origin. It is by God's sovereign election that you are saved. Who are you, O man, to reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to the one who formed it, Why have you made me thus? How can the dirt say to the potter, Why have you made me this way? Oh no, I have a free will. I make the decisions around here, not a sovereign God. I don't like the idea of hell. People just go to sleep. Soul sleep replaces hell. I don't really have spiritual needs. I have felt needs. So meet my felt needs and let's ignore my real needs. Don't tell me about salvation through Christ alone. That's too narrow. Salvation by faith? No, it has to be salvation by works. Inerrancy is not scientifically verifiable, therefore, it's not believable. The Jesus of history must be distinguished from the Christ of faith. The physical resurrection is really spiritual. The virgin birth? A fabricated myth from overzealous early disciples. The Miracles of the Bible, demythologized to suit our pseudo-intellectualism. Biblical morality, now we really get close to hell. What the Bible says is how I must behave as a believer. Changes from culture to culture. You see, the values of society determine the moral fabric of my being. Creation is supplanted by an evolutionary view that at best reduces God to a detached and uncaring transcendent being and at worst to virtual non-existence. And when the book of Genesis is reduced to a fairy tale, so is the doctrine of sin, so is the depravity of man, so is the character and the nature of a holy God all thrown out in one fell swoop. That's why evolution is such a dangerous doctrine. Because it attacks the very essence of the character and nature both of God and man. We are then reduced to believe in a God who doesn't care. A Christ who was deluded. A Holy Spirit who lives only in the neighborhood of make-believe. And a church that is intellectually naive, moralistically neutral, and socially irrelevant. And that is what we have collectively become. The moral code is now reversed. Sin becomes an acceptable way of life. That's why Isaiah said in chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Practical atheism gives birth to hedonism, gives birth to rationalism, gives birth to relativism. And that is why we read next in verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. You know what that is? Man is now insisting on his own privacy, the rights of personal autonomy. I have no social responsibility to anybody around me, it's what's in my eyes and my cleverness that determines whether or not I get involved. This is privatism privatism. Both the wisdom that provides ruling principles for life and the cleverness that decides specific issues, you see, they are now made privately and not within the context of any moral code or any system of authority. I decide if it's right for me, regardless of whether or not it's right. What I do privately is my own business. What I do in the privacy of my home and in my own life is my business alone. It is not for you to say that I'm right. It is not for you to say that I'm wrong. If it harms no one, then it must be right. Actually, it's between me and God. And it's none of your business to interfere, right? Wrong. Now you look at our country alone. This has been the legislative backbone of Roe v. Wade. That legalized abortion. A million and a half babies every year are slaughtered in the name of privatism. It's the legislative backbone of the gay rights agenda. It's the legislative backbone of ultra-feminism. It's the legislative backbone of the ban on prayer and Bible reading in the classroom. It is that crowd that has legislated out of, public, of the public forum any sense of moral code. Why? Because I have a right to privacy. But it is that same crowd that wants to invade our privacy and wrestle the minds of our children from us with an agenda that is anti-Christian, anti-family, and anti-Bible. This country has experienced a great scourge. You know what was interesting to me? I'll probably get into all kinds of trouble with some of my uh, peers in terms of this not being good intellectual scholarship, and, and that's fine, and they're probably right, but I'll do it anyway. I look at the book of Isaiah. I see Isaiah, who was a good king, but did not put away the altars. I see Jotham, who was a good king, but did not put away the altars. And they keep saying that until eventually you come down to Ahaz and Manasseh who sacrificed their children and ate their bodies in the name of the gods, the heathen gods of the altars that their fathers refused to dismantle. I go all the way back in this country to the early 1970s when a young, quote, born again, a Georgian politician stood up and captured with not only his smile but his demeanor public politics and became the President of the United States in 1976. Jimmy Carter stood up and said, I am a born-again person. He was not private about that. He let anybody who wanted to know, know. I teach Sunday school. I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. I'm personally opposed to abortion, but he did nothing to rip down the altar. Ronald Reagan did nothing to rip down the altar. George Bush did nothing to rip down the altar. What can we expect when we allow the altars to continue to be built? We look at them and we say, they're not pretty and they ought to come down. But we refuse to take them down. According to Isaiah, we must bear the wrath of God's God's justice for our pacifism. Let me wrap this up. Practical atheism. A self-dependence or a a denial of the power of God in our lives. We must become absolutely dependent upon God if we're ever going to change this. Hedonism. Self-seeking, self-serving interest must become the gospel of self-sacrifice. Rationalism must yield itself to the authority of Scripture. Relativism must bow at the law of God. Privatism must die, and public witness must emerge. And passivism must fade into vibrant prayer for revival. If ever the church was primed for revival, it is now. But if ever the church was primed for judgment, it's also now. Because all of these sins, all six of these sins, characterize, formed a heart of the church's thinking today. With very few exceptions, this is how we think. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? But I'm so glad Isaiah 5 doesn't end right there. Isaiah 6 comes into play. God reaches down. And you are going to see in the call of Isaiah, which we'll address the next time we're together, the triumph of God's grace. Even in the face of practical atheism, hedonism, rationalism, relativism, privatism, passivism. Even in the light of... Of such grotesque sins, God always has His prophets. He always has His people. And we'll follow that through and watch as the grace of God unfolds. Are you praying for revival? Are you praying for revival? I don't know about you, but I don't want God's judgment on the church. I know it's coming, but I'm praying for revival. I hope you are. I hope you're committed to it with all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your mind and strength. I hope that you pray that God would break the will of His church, starting with you. And that's where revival begins, doesn't it? Starting with you. Please don't walk out of here today and say, Man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that sermon. I get that all the time. I wish so-and-so was here. Well, so-and-so wasn't here, but you are. So maybe the message was meant for you, and not so-and-so. Would you pray for revival? Would you pray for renewal?
0: Wow, what an amazing series on the gospel. Yes, the gospel is the thread that holds together the Old and New Testament. And without that gospel, we would all be undone. As we close out this series, I hope you'll remember to stop by our website and sign up for my blog, Treasures of Encouragement, or check out the hundreds of free resources designed to offer help and hope to hurting people that we have on our website. We have free downloads on topics such as autism, loss of a loved one, breast cancer, terminal illness. Because of the faithful support of people like yourself, we can offer these resources free of charge Ron, please share with our audience how they can access these resources and many more. Thank you for joining us for today's message from the Grapes of Wrath series. If you would like to receive a copy of this entire sermon, you can contact Mark Inc. Ministries and request The Grapes of Wrath Part 3 or simply reference sermon number 94-37. Mark Inc. Ministries can be reached toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877 627 5462 Check out our website at www.markinc.org Did you know you can share today's message with a friend or family member or download today's message in its entirety free on our website Simply visit us at www.markinc.org You can also call us if you like at toll free 877-627-5462 that's 877 Mark Inc. Mark Inc. Ministries provides help and hope to hurting people. Be sure to join us online for more information about our many resources. Mark Inc. Ministries is a nonprofit ministry that appreciates your ongoing prayers and support. For more information, or if you would like to email us, visit our website at markinc.org. We would also like to invite you to join us for our Sunday morning service at Glasgow Church. The church is located at 2880 Summit Bridge Road in Bear, Delaware, and our service begins at 10.30 a.m. each Sunday morning. If you are unable to attend the service in person, you can join our live stream from anywhere by going to our website at www.glasgowchurch.com. If you would like to contact us at the church, we can be reached at area code 302-834-4772 or through our website at glasgowchurch.com. Thank you again for listening to today's broadcast. Be sure to join us tomorrow for In His Grip and another riveting series by Dr. Betters. Have a blessed day and remember that God is sovereign and you can trust Him as long as you are in His grip.